Hello and welcome to a special bonus episode of Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony, and I'm flying solo on this occasion. Those of you who follow us on social media will know that we attended our local Doctor Who convention, Who Lanta, in early May. During the con, I took the opportunity to record interviews with a selection of attendees around both their love of the William Hartnell era of Doctor Who, as well as whatever projects they may be up to these days. So with that, I'm very happy to present the first set of interviews, featuring podcaster Adam Spring, convention director R. Alan Seiler, author Robin Burks, and former BBC producer Louis Robinson. First up, we hop on over to my chat with Robin Burks, who has written such novels as Madame Vampire, Zeus Incorporated, The Curse of Hecate, and Return of the Titans. Robin, hi, it's good to see you again. How are you? Hi, I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. It's been one hell of a con. Sad it's coming to an end, but, you know, I'm all good things. Very true. I've had a great weekend. So, obviously, we've, we've talked a little about the podcast. You know we're right in the middle of Hartnell right now. I know you're a fan. Yes. The way I'm really running this is I'm letting the people I'm talking to talk about whatever they like in terms of Hartnell, but... Some common themes we've had has been, you know, favorite stories or general overview of the era, their impressions of early Doctor Who. So how do you want to go with this? Um, however it goes. <laughs> so how did you come to be a fan of early Doctor Who? Um, well, I started obviously with New Who. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine kept begging me to watch um, Christopher Eccleston. Right. And the episodes went on Netflix. I watched one episode. I watched another and the next thing I know was through the season, and I eventually got caught up and got hooked on Doctor Who. And then I went to Gallifrey One. Ooh. Yeah. The Holy and, Grail of cons. Yes. And I got introduced to somebody. I actually met Colin Baker at that con. I'd never seen him before. Oh, he's lovely. Yes, he's wonderful. I did a con with him a couple of years ago. And I started, I, I wanted something for him to sign, so I went to the Big Finish table, which was where he was sitting. And I bought one of his Big Finish audio adventures, and I fell in love with his doctor. And I'm like, I need to go back and start watching more classic Who. And at the time, it was all on Hulu, well, except for the missing episodes. Right. So I went to Hulu, and I, just like you, I started with William Hartnell in you know the episodes that were available. And I was like, wow, the show's always been really good, and I loved it. Yeah, it's. Um, I always find that interesting for people who came to the show with New Who. Because I've seen some go back to Hartnell and say, oh, this is this is dry, this is slow, this is plodding. And I, I, I don't see that at all. <laughs> I, I agree with you, but I, I get it. I mean, particularly younger people, I guess Gen, Gen Z is the next thing after millennials. And right. I hate to be disparaging, and I, I don't mean <laughs> to be disparaging, but the impression I get is, you know, yeah. there's an appetite in general amongst that generation for something a bit faster paced mm-hmm. but you look back at that era particularly Hartnell Troughton and you get something that's a bit more thoughtful it might be slower but it's very well made yes and honestly it's phenomenal I think so so do you have a favorite Hartnell story I love the Aztecs up to that point we kind of see we, you know he's like the grumpy grandfather mm-hmm. but we start to see him soften up a little bit in the Aztecs and I, I really liked seeing that side of him yeah we talked about it on the podcast but there's that moment he 
I think it was in the Aztecs where he snaps at Barbara, but then almost immediately apologizes. Yes, yes. And you start seeing that more tender side to him right. as he opens up to these people. And, and you really get to see kind of completely different side of the doctor. So speaking of the Aztecs, obviously the, one of the quirks of the Hartnell era that you only really see once outside of it is the, the concept of the pure historical, right? So no mm. sci-fi element whatsoever. Is that something you find that you enjoy and, and would like to see revisited in I, I like I like you know I think the show was originally intended to teach you know history to kids and still be entertaining and it's kind of interesting that we're now sort of getting back to that with the 13th doctor right I love it I thought the best episode of the new season was Rosa yeah the, yeah I mean, it's, it's been an interesting season I thought that the cast were phenomenal yeah the episodes were hit or miss Rosa right. was phenomenal but I think Chris Chibnall has very deliberately echoed the Hartnell era in yes. some ways. I mean, he's got three companions in the TARDIS, right. which obviously Hartnell did in those early mm. episodes. He's brought back the educational aspect. Someone I know even commented that Jodie's hair is a similar length to the wig that Hartnell used to wear. But That's brilliant. <laughs> I never thought of that. <laughs> so I think there are some very deliberate echoes there. And I'm just glad to see the that era getting a nod again. Me too. So, yeah. so Robin, I think that pretty much wraps up everything I wanted to talk about, Hartnell. What are you up to? Is there anything you want to promote or plug or... Um... Obviously, uh, I am an author and I have books. They are, um, you can visit my website, robin burkscom I'm on Amazon, I'm on Barnes & Noble. Go check me out. I write genre fiction, sci-fi, fantasy. She's very good. Oh, thank you. So, <laughs> well, Robin, thank you for your time. Thank Safe you. journey home and uh, enjoy what's left of the con. All right, thank you. We'll see you next time. That was Robin Burks, and links to her website and her books are in the show notes. Next up, I talk to my good friend and fellow Brit, Adam Spring. Adam is one of the hosts of the Remotely Interested podcast, which is a really great podcast about technology and people. Adam always has excellent insight, and the following conversation is exemplary of the quality of his own podcast. I highly recommend that you check it out. Adam, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. How are you doing? I'm very good, and you know, thank you for having me on your podcast. Welcome. So, as you know, uh, on the podcast, we are currently watching the Hartnell era. Yep. And we're taking time to talk to some people, get their opinions on the Hartnell era, what they like, what they didn't like, and what their favorite story is, etc. So, let's keep this kind of conversational. Absolutely. As far as Doctor Who goes, is he up there in the upper range for you, or is it one of your lesser favorite doctors? Well, I think Hartnell's an interesting one because he's the foundation stone, right? I mean, it's kind of... When you watch his episodes, it's very much a case of it's the show before it became the show that everybody knows, you know? And it kind of reiterates just how flexible the format is. I think the interesting thing about both his hero and also as well with Patrick Troughton for a younger generation, you know, for example, with me, autobiographically, I grew up in 80s Britain and I caught the tail end of classic Doctor Who. The earliest one for me would have been Peter Davison. I don't remember him. I don't really remember 
uh, Colin Baker either besides you know the ghoulish Dalek that was made out of a human mm. you know and for me very much Sylvester McCoy is my doctor but if you look back to that era of you know as a kid understanding that classic Doctor Who to try and watch those earlier episodes past I would say and I mean past as in backwards John Pertwee because it wasn't the color era it wasn't very easy right right and I think the age we live in now of you know always on media and constant streaming both the Troughton and the Hartnell years have become very interesting because they're so foreign to a generation and they're in black and white at a time when it kind of works in a way you know and I think for Hartnell in particular it's very interesting to see both the dynamic between him and the companions because the companions are the ones kind of taking the lead in a way yep and so i think to answer your question i know it's a slightly long-winded answer i think he's an important stepping stone but i also think one of the problems you have with that era similar with Troughton, is you don't have the complete episode set right and some very key episodes in those sets as well so it's not like minor ones it's like you know the regeneration all we have is a bit that appeared on blue peter so i think you know there's several ways in which you could answer it but i think probably the most coherent way would be there's always a mystery about him right yeah and that's lasted the test of time for both reality reasons and fictional reasons and i think to that point the mystery is so key when you start getting more and more of the doctor's background it becomes a little less interesting yeah so and there have been times when they've taken it back right Absolutely. so when russell t davies brought it back he destroyed gallifrey and removed that from the show absolutely giving more mystery to the character because we're not suddenly going to go off to Gallifrey and have a, an adventure with the Time Lords which never quite works and in the Hartnell era you just didn't have that yeah well I mean it kind of it takes you back in a way it's an interesting point actually because it kind of takes you back to the isolationist idea mm-hmm. right of just the old man in the box with the young companion sort of flying around but it's you know obviously it's now a very stylized a millennial man in a box, so to speak. But, or woman these days. Or woman these days, exactly. And, but again, you know, flexibility of the genre, and I think that's key. But I think another thing about the Hartnell era, because the thing that really always strikes me about Hartnell, you know, isn't just some of the episodes like Marco Polo or any of the historical stuff that you see there, but I think it's just fascinating from a cultural point of view, those years, to think that you had... William Hartnell at Butlins, for example, which, you know, British holiday camp at the time. Right. Going around and doing shows with Dalek runarounds and things. You just wouldn't have seen that in, you know, my generation of Doctor Who, for example, which right. comes later. You know, it was, he was such a cultural phenomenon, but also as well, in terms of British sci-fi, to have someone that really was kind of a throwback to the colonial period. Yeah. As a Doctor. You know, and as a doctor in the swinging 60s and a new generation of post-war Britain, it was very, uh, it was very interesting seeing this, you know, taking it back to the, the old man in a, in a box idea. It was kind of an anachronism, someone that was constantly out of time, you know, and out of space in a way, in reality yeah. as a person, you know. It's interesting you bring up the colonialist aspect yeah. of it. Watching through it myself, I, th- I think while the first doctor seems very old Edwardian Britain, He's very anti-colonialist. Take Interesting. Look, you take a look at the Aztecs, for example, and he's the one saying to Barbara, you mustn't interfere. This is their culture. You can't change it. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, I've never thought about it like that before. Yeah. And that's something you see, that the sensorites as well. That's not quite looking in history, but again, he's seeing a bunch of humans and saying, this is their culture. You can't take over their world and mine it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's... It, he has that kind of colonialist era look and almost attitude, but equally he's 
kind of preaching an anti-colonialist message. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that ebbs and flows over the years, depending on who is responsible for the direction of the show, be it the script editor or the producer. Yeah, and of course, so, you know, given the set of people that were in the production team at that time, it's, yeah, that's, very, that's a very interesting point. I've never thought about it like that before. Yeah. So, speaking of the Aztecs, the, the Hartnell era obviously has something that most other eras do not, and that's the, the so-called pure historical. Yep. So, are you a fan? Would you love to see more uh, pure historicals if they were to bring it back now? Or do you think it was something that is interesting in the context of the time, but might not work these days? I mean, I think it could work, but I think it would have to be done well, right? Because again, you've got this idea of resolution. If you think about what, you know, how the show was presented back then and on what television technology or display technology it was on, these days, if you were going to do it, it would have to be very well done. And, you know, the BBC, they're very good at period dramas, so they could probably do it. But I, I mean, I don't think stuff like that ever goes away. But I think... You know, coming back to that period of both Hartnell and Troughton, I think the one thing that really stands out for both of those eras is the fact that it was so character-driven. Right. And I think the history side of it ties into that. You know, so to see a couple of those episodes in this day and age would be very interesting. Because I think, it would, again, you know, a show that's so flexible, it would freshen things up again. You know? I, I think when you look at the most recent season with an episode like Rosa... Right, yeah, 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 yeah. There was a sci-fi element in that one, but it felt almost shoehorned in. Yeah, that, yeah, I think that story would have worked a lot better without the sci-fi element and maybe adjust the story a little to fit yeah. that so they still have to make sure history happens. But, you know, I, I think that could have worked and it's almost a shame they didn't try and go down that path. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is, this is a different conversation in itself, but I don't think, let me put it this way, I don't think Chris Chibnall is basically the person that the previous lead writers were. And I think right. that shows a lot in episodes like that. There's also, you know? there's also this fan theory, I don't know how true it is, that upper BBC management won't let the show do a pure historical. Interesting. I think it has to have a sci-fi element to keep the kids interested. Very interesting. Well, you so. know, I mean, in, in this day and age where there are so many different outlets and so many different, you know fan ways of doing things the pressure may come from various different sources in the end where they have to go with it you know so it's interesting you know talking about Chibnall and his whatever he may lack as a writer some of the things he has tried to do as showrunner has he's really tried to take the show full circle so he's yeah brought in a TARDIS crew where there are three companions just like yep in the original yeah exactly uh, yeah. Run. he's tried to bring back an educational aspect so you get a bit of science and, and a bit of history in those episodes. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting how the show keeps coming back to cut those foundational elements that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, and I think, you know, doing it when he did in terms of the introduction of a first female doctor on screen, certainly, that in itself is interesting because, yeah, it just show, goes to show, as I said before, it's just such a flexible format and also a self-referential format right. that it has the ability built into it to be able to do that. And I think, you know, him as a showrunner, again, it's, as you said, he's done that in terms of the companions are now kind of really equal to the Doctor, right? It's like they're not right. playing second fiddle. But I think also as well, you know, the other thing you have to give him credit for is the fact that he does have the first female Doctor on screen. So, yeah. you know, those, those are the things I just... I don't know, for me, and again, this isn't a slight, but there's just a very different feel to how would this have felt if it was Stephen Moffat or how would it have felt if it was Russell T. Davis. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, I think, I think the guy's been put in a difficult spot, but I think certain episodes like Rosa, which was a good episode, 
but it could have been better if I think it was in somebody else's hands. And I don't mean that as a criticism, but it just, yeah. Yeah, I mean, honestly, we've been a little critical when we've mentioned Chris Chibnall on this podcast before. Yeah. Um, I think we all feel like he has some deficiencies, but again, he had some very big shoes to fill with someone from someone who was known for a very complex oh, storytelling yeah, style. And he's stripped it way back, and it just feels like such a shock to the system. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's like watching Day of the Doctor and then going back and watching An Unearthly Child. Absolutely. You know, it's, it, it's two very different styles of storytelling. And the big difference is between those two stories, you have 50 years of history. Yeah. We, in the space of 18 months, went from Stephen Moffat Complicated to Chris Chibnall, early Doctor Who Simplicity. And yeah. it's one hell of a system shock. Yeah, no, it is. And I, but again, I think, you know, tying it back to Hartnell, one of the very interesting things about his period was, you know, due to his health, not necessarily by design, how much input he actually ended up having in the dialogue of the character when he couldn't remember the lines, for example. Yeah, and so, some you know. of that was scripted as well. Uh, some of his uh, so-called blunders were actually scripted. Oh, interesting. Uh, some of them weren't. Some of them were. But he's, I mean, he was a tour de force and brilliant and while I think modern doctors tend to look to Patrick Troughton as their template for how they play it, the show wouldn't be here without Arnold. Well, yeah, I mean, that's so. the reality of it is, like I said, it, he was very much a foundation stone, and, you know, part of that is that kind of success, it's not by accident, it's you've got a very, very good actor there. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Well, Adam, I think that pretty much rounds out our conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank it's you been a pleasure as always. Yeah, absolutely. That was Adam Spring, and you can find his podcast, Remotely Interested, at remotely-interested.com or on any good podcasting app. The link is also in the show notes. Up next, I was fortunate enough to be able to snag some time with Alan Seiler, one of the directors of Hulanta. Alan is also the author of Doctor Who's Greatest Hits and the editor of Children of Time, an anthology book on the companions of Doctor Who. Alan, thank you for finding some time to talk to me. How are you? Um, very well. How are you? I'm doing well. It's been a, a good con. So, uh, thank I'm so you. glad. Thank you for everything you and uh, your fellow directors have done. This is obviously the, the last Hulanta, hopefully for now. But hopefully. I understand you guys are going to kind of regroup and see how you feel in yep. a little bit of time. And Yep, exactly and so right. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. No, no way to predict the future at this point, but you know, right. we'll and, see what happens. I mean, what you guys have done here since the original one in 2005 at the Elks Lodge to having multiple doctors, yeah. putting on an amazing show that's brought so many people together has been nothing short of amazing. So, oh, Thank you so much for uh, saying that. For all that's... of us who've been to this con, thank you for what you've done. Well, thank you um, for being part of it for all these years. Of course. It's greatly appreciated. So as you know, on the podcast right now, we're deep in the Hartnell era. I know oh, yeah. you're a massive fan you, of, mm-hmm. of Doctor Who in general. You wrote yeah. a book on Doctor Who's Greatest Hits. Yep. You've, you edited Companions, uh, a book on the Companions, Companions mm-hmm. in Time. Children that, in Time. Children in Time, yeah. that was it. Um, so obviously, you're a huge fan of the entire show. Yes, definitely. So the Hartnell era, mm-hmm. 
what do you love about it? Uh, if, if anything that you that strikes you as different. Oh yeah, without a doubt. Uh, the Hartnell era is really it's it's full of experiment. It's full of doing things for the first time. It's it's people who really haven't set what Doctor Who is in stone yet, so they just do anything, which in itself kind of became the template for the rest of the series, where the series has the freedom to do anything it wants. It can be a Western one time, or it can, you know, tell the Greek Trojan tragedies and all this kind of stuff, and then it can go into a, an insect planet in outer space and everything that they did was they just tried to always expand the horizons of their abilities and always reach beyond their means to do more stuff right yeah and i mean i think as we've been watching it at the time that you and i are talking we've recorded up to dalek invasion of earth we've published Ooh. up to the aztecs yeah but as we've been watching it that first recording block yeah. with Susan yeah. you can really see them finding their feet and yeah mm -hmm. they're experimenting but they're also experimenting with the stars of the show and figuring out the character dynamics in, in a way that later mm -hmm. who doesn't need to that's so true. Much. Yeah that's um, a very good you point. Know, they're still figuring out who the Doctor is. That's very true yes. Um, yeah and that, a lot of that really kind of gets solidified once Patrick Troughton takes over Right. But you can see it's really interesting to watch this progression because if you watch the very first story, The Unearthly Child and the 100,000 BC and all that stuff, and then you watch the first story of season two, the right. Planet of the Planet of Giants, the Doctor is markedly different right. from who he started out being. And if you watch that whole first season, you see that evolution of him sort of becoming the Doctor that we think of when we think of the Doctor. So it's interesting. One of my favorite writers on the subject of Elizabeth Sandifer, who does the mm -hmm. TARDIS Ruditorum blog. Yes. She very specifically talks about the point in the sensorites where he decides mm -hmm. he's going to stay and fix things, Absolutely. even though he doesn't have to. It's because the it's the that, right thing to do. And that's the moment he becomes the doctor. It, that's that absolutely. We, or at least the doctor that we know. I, I totally agree with that. 100%. So. Yeah, that is absolutely it. There's a couple of other things, too. Another thing that's really interesting about the first season is that there seems to be this through line. The first season has a lot of historicals. Right. Right. And the way the doctor seems to approach it is that history is immutable. And it, that comes explicit in the Aztecs. And the last one of the season is Reign of Terror. And it kind of comes into play again, where he's saying, you know, there's nothing we can really do to change these events. And the quote is, and I can't remember it specifically, but it's something along the lines of, we can't change the flood of history, but we can keep from being carried away by the tide. And I thought that was such a great line. And it's interesting because he's saying this to Barbara and Barbara says, oh, I know, I've learned that lesson when we're back with the Aztecs. And then you get up into season two and the historicals become a little sillier and they become, a, you know, and you get the meddling monk who clearly you can, you know, change history because that's his whole bag. So it's a really interesting evolution of, of the thought process. And I think we see that change with the move from David Whittaker to Dennis Spooner as the script editor. Mm -hmm. and they, the show starts moving in a different direction and yep. David Whittaker had his thoughts on how history should work. And right, right. Dennis Spooner had other thoughts. But, you know, it's, it's interesting just the inconsistencies even in the first few years on how they <laughs> handle that. Yeah. Speaking of the Aztecs, one thing I've been asking people is around the so-called pure historicals, mm -hmm. which were obviously the first couple of seasons a mm -hmm. lot more commonplace, and then you get 
after Hartnell, you get one in the Davison era, and then we never have another one. Yeah. Do you think that's something that could work in this day and age with one of the modern Doctors? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, you almost had that with Rosa. You know, the villain character... I did air quotes like anybody who listening to this can see that. <laughs> but the villain character is I'm not not irrelevant. He definitely sets up, you know, obstacles for the TARDIS team to overcome, but he's not an alien. He's not there's nobody mind possessed. There's you know, it could easily have been a pure historic. And, you know, Punjab as well. There's, so there's there's a rumor floating around fandom that that's an edict from senior management at the BBC that they have to include some kind of sci-fi element. Don't know how true that is. Right. But, I mean, at times in, in Rosa, certainly to me, Carrasco felt very shoehorned in. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, and I think they could have easily done a story where they had to get Rosa on the bus, but she was kind of wavering. Yes, right? yeah. And they had to make sure history stayed on course and Rosa got there mm-hmm. without there being someone trying to screw with history. Right. Right. And that might have almost felt a bit more organic. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I totally agree. It's kind of disheartening to think that there are still racists in the 50th century. I, I agree <laughs> with that. He wasn't, I don't think he was a very well, unless he comes back at some point and we learn more about him, he doesn't seem a very well thought out villain. He's just there to make sure the story goes the way it's supposed to go. Yeah. But it's funny that you say that because even though it's not a historical back in Peter Davison, um, Caves of Androzani. They added, even though he's only in like one little tiny scene, they added in the magma monster because John Nathan Turner said, we have to have a monster. So it's very plausible that somebody in the brass said there has to be a sci-fi element. And with Robert Holmes being Robert Holmes, if you think it came to the Androzani, I'm sure he would have said, well, the monster's the humans. The monster is all of us. Exactly Um, right. But, um, you know, it's a shame they didn't go down that path. Might have been a little too esoteric. Yeah, yeah. But But that's kind of the theme of... Jody's season, you know, it's that the the aliens that we encounter aren't always really. They appear right. to be the villain, and then they turn out really to not be, with the exception of Tim Shaw. Well, it's that's just true. Awful. <laughs> that, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but otherwise, no. Your your point one hundred percent stands. Um, so. Obviously, thank you for, for talking about Doc Two. What's next for you? Are you working on another book? Are you? Yes. Anything you'd like to to publicize? <laughs> Okay, well, I'm working on a complete rewrite of the first book, Doctor Who's Greatest Hits. It's going to be at least 200 pages bigger than the original version. The first one was 50-something chapters. The new one is 85 chapters, I think it is. Completely reorganized. It's going to be a, a, it's a big project, actually. And then I've got a Star Trek book that I'm almost done with. And at some point, I am going to work on my Bowie book. Ooh. And I've had in my head for, uh, and have a full outline for, and notes for, for the last two years now. So yeah, it's going to be that, but I've got, I've got a lot of interesting things that sort of have come my way. Like, I found out that Katie Manning hung out with the Spiders from Mars in the BBC canteen when they were on Top of the Pops, and she was on, you know, Doctor Who. So she said, I said, oh, I'd love to interview you about that time. And she said, oh, yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to. So, you know, I'm hoping to get some of those kind of little cool stories to kind of pepper along throughout it. Yeah. We were on the Bowie panel earlier today. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that came became very obvious is the sheer number of people who were friends with Bowie. Yeah. You know, might not necessarily be obvious. Yeah. It'd be really cool if you could get some, some good interviews with... 
some people. I'm, I'm sure that if you can just get past some agents, some people would be very yeah. willing to do it. I found, um, I found one guy who was uh, an extra on The Hunger and did an overnight shoot standing next to Bowie uh, where they're doing uh, a scene outside the club mm-hmm. and just told all these stories about Bowie and... He's like, oh, can I can I break for a cigarette? You know that kind of thing. So I've I've, I've made a couple of contacts like that, and I'm hoping when I get the focus on it, I'll have a lot more. Well, very cool. So if you're listening to this, check out Children in Time. Wait for Alan's new version of Doctor Who's Greatest Hits, and if you're interested in David Bowie, that's going to be well worth a read. Alan, thank you so much for your time. Good luck with everything, and Hulanta has been a blast. Thank you so much. So, I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. That was Alan Siler, and you can find his work through the links in the show notes. Finally, at least for this episode, I spoke to Louis Robinson. A long-term friend of mine, Louis was most prominent in his career for being the producer of the British TV quiz show Teleaddicts. He also started out his career as a film editor and worked on the John Pertwee-era story The Demons. Louis is a fellow British exile in Georgia and has transitioned out of TV and into music and can be found periodically performing on the folk music scene in the greater Atlanta area. Louis, how are you? It's good to see you again. <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. It's been a busy weekend. I'm so happy you found time to sit down and chat. Yeah. Um, as you know, on the podcast, we're watching our way through the Hartnell era. And since you were a. I saw around, the first program go out live. <laughs> exactly. And then eventually you worked on Doctor Who itself. Yes, so I right. thought you might have some interesting perspectives. So were you hooked from the very first episode? Yeah, absolutely. I know it's supposed to be very primitive and all that, but. You mustn't forget that that's the first kind of thing like that we saw for children, for us. I mean, it was really for kids. Right. We were behind the sofa from the very beginning. So, yeah, I mean, it got better and better, actually, as we carried on watching. I I loved William Hartnell. I always thought, I always think of him as Doctor Who. I always think of Doctor Who as grandfather. Yeah, I think think it got better and better. And then it kind of waned a bit, I think. But the time that I was between watching the first William Hartnell... And working on Doctor Who, which was The Demons with John Pertwee. I mean, it was only, it was a very short time when I think about it. Because uh, I did that, it was at 10 years, 10 or 12 years. And 12 years later, I was working on the thing. Great respect for it. Thinking at the time, heretically, I wish I'd been working on the first ones. <laughs> because I didn't think, that, funny enough, I, did, I couldn't take it in colour. <laughs> I right. always thought of it as black and white. I've actually got a friend who... Um still to this day insists on turning the colour down on the TV <laughs> for modern Doctor Who. Yeah. This is a black and white show. Must and actually you can get away with, when you've got a small budget, you can get away with a lot more in black and white than you can in colour. That's one of the things we keep coming back to is black and white covers up all manner of sins. Absolutely right. Um, Absolutely right. I think, um, I think also the more it went on and the more they figured out what they couldn't do, the better it got. So you can't go I always feel that in science fiction movies, whenever you have, uh, they get into a spacecraft and go to the moon, you're in trouble. 
if you've got no budget, you're really in trouble. So right. try and think of a different way of getting to the moon, you know, like in a, in a post box. <laughs> that works. I mean, that's a really great device, isn't it? Because yeah. it gets you over all kinds of stuff. And you don't mind seeing a cardboard cutout of it spinning around and going into a different time. Fine, you know. There was a Doctor Who episode, I don't know if you've seen it. Um, it was where he goes back so far that time doesn't exist. Nothing exists. And he keeps opening the doors. And Unless I dreamt this. He keeps opening the doors and, and he says, where is everything? And so it's before things began. And I, I think it was a one-off, you know. Hmm. Anyway, I look at, if you, when you find it, tell yeah, me. Yeah, it sounds vaguely. I mean, yeah. as far as I know, I've seen virtually everything broadcast. Yeah. I just don't, I'm not <laughs> placing it. Um, so, as a child, it, it became almost must-watch viewing on oh, a weekly abs- basis for you. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And what people don't realize, remember either is that Doctor Who would be on. I think it was like five o'clock on a Saturday mm-hmm. afternoon, uh, and then when it took its break, Star Trek replaced it. And that actually was a bit of a disadvantage because Star Trek was on 35mm film and came with all the money that Americans had. And we were back again to Doctor Who, which was not what Americans had. And it was having to be more... Whereas, whereas really, Star Trek was all about going into space and meeting monsters. As somebody was talking at a, at a panel I was just at and said, you know, Star Trek isn't science fiction. It's engineering fiction that actually to be science fiction you need really clever ideas not better and better stuff and actually the thing about once once um, Doctor Who lost its educational remit and became a real science fiction show there were some really crazy ideas in it which which is what I love you know well when you think about crazy ideas there was that Troughton story the mind robber where they go off into the land of fiction Yes. They start getting yeah. really out there at times. Yeah. And those magical words, what if? A lot of people in these days of police dramas can't say what if. They say, what do you do? Okay, well, we'll try and dramatize that. They can't sit back and say, what would happen if? And that's the best thing about sci-fi. And, and actually, Doctor Who, it's a funny thing about Doctor Who over the years. It's been a, an educational program, a science fiction program, a political program, you know, where, where the politics of the Daleks versus the, the master and all that. So it's encompassed everything. And the nice thing about it is you can sit down now and you can say, especially with the new the new Who's, what do we want to do this week? And it doesn't matter. You can meet Shakespeare and Dickens or you can uh, get a monster. doesn't matter. doesn't matter. So with the era you grew up on, have you revisited that as an adult and watched rewatched it? I have and I couldn't. I really couldn't because I began to see the William Hartnell things as incredibly creaky. But as I was saying yesterday, don't forget the television screens were very small. Now we're watching this stuff reproduced on, I mean, redigitized on big screens. And it doesn't really, I mean, technically it doesn't stand up. I would right. like to listen to them. I think if I could close my eyes and just go, okay, I'm going to listen to what's happening and imagine what I thought I saw, you know, then fine. Although the Troughton stuff is terrific. I think yes. once you get to Troughton, you're, you're, it's, I, I watched the three... What were the three ones that were just re, re, re-released? The Enemy of the World, oh, I think, was one of them. Because that was missing and was found. Fantastic. Fantastic. And then you think... It's like when you see... When I go and see a Shakespeare play, I always think to myself, how did he know all that in 1600? You know? And with, with Troughton, I keep thinking to myself, my gosh, that's really good for the time. Which, of course, is an insult because it was really good, period. But 
again, it's so easy. I think television has evolved so quickly as a medium. And so have our perceptions. I mean, right. just think how long a scene is these days. I mean, in those days, you know. Blink and you miss it a lot yeah, of the time now. It would be really fantastic, wouldn't it, to go through all the, all the Doctor Whos and put together a montage of the companions walking into the TARDIS for the first time and to see the different ways in which over the course of all this time our approach has changed because we're the companions. And we walk in the first time and we say, what, what is this place? You know, what is this place? Whereas now you walk and you go, holy cow, look at this, you know. So that would be that would be a fun project, but I don't think I've got the time to to edit the sequences together. I, you know, uh, knowing the internet, someone's probably so, already probably done, done it. it. If yeah. I find it, I'll let yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> well, Louis, I mean, this this has been fantastic. Obviously, um, the golden question is: Do you remember some of the stories that are now missing? No, I mean, uh, do you know? When I was at working at the BBC, I worked at a place called Villiers House, and Villiers House was this nondescript seven-story building and it was where the people put the archives for BBC Enterprises and they used to throw stuff away and I got cans and cans and cans of stuff which I had under my bed many Doctor Who's which I then gave away to friends and I just kick myself and think to myself you know I wonder what I had and I'll bet you I'll bet you there are programs around in people's houses that are still yet to be found. So it's, it's interesting, Paul Venezis, who's on the restoration team and has been working very closely with Philip Morris on his recovery efforts, right. has recently gone on record as saying he knows for certain that a private collector has two episodes that are currently considered to be missing. Well, why can't he go and see get him? Talk Appar- to him? Apparently the collector's not willing to negotiate at this point that's in time. That's crazy, that's selfish. That's like having a, a priceless painting and not putting it in the museum. The, what, what Paul said online was the collector in question has bigger fish to fry at the moment but might be willing to talk in a few years, basically. Oh, what a so. shame. But think of all the Doctor Who fans who'd like to see that who will be no longer around in a few years. You right. Know? Oh, that's so selfish. I that's mean, so selfish. So who was your first Who? I think the first one I saw was John Pertwee. But then the first one I came to love was Sylvester McCoy. Right, okay. My father came home one day when I was maybe five years old with three VHS tapes. One was The Mind Robber with uh, Patrick Troughton, The Time Warrior with John Pertwee, and The Ark in Space with Tom Baker, because that was the time he watched Doctor right, Who right. as a, a teenager and then into his university days. And I think the first one I watched was The Pertwee, right. and I was hooked. Yeah, I consumed yeah. all the Doctor Who I could from that point on. Yeah. It has enormous impact on people. It really does. And people don't realize it. You know, I'll tell you a funny story. When I was working on the BBC, I worked on a thing called the BBC Exhibitions Unit. And we used to go around uh, with this huge tent where we used to do shows and introduce celebrities. And one of the celebrities was Sylvester McCoy. And he'd come around to, to promote the fact he was in a Shakespeare in the, in the Park production. And this kid was sitting in the front, staring at him. And all the people were asking him about when he first got started in acting and all his motivations and all that. And the little kid put his hand up and said, how old are you in Gallifreyan years? <laughs> and I just thought, you know, that kid doesn't care about Sylvester McCoy, the actor. He's sitting at the feet of Doctor Who. Yeah. Oh, it's a bit like the scene in the Adventures in Space and Time when uh, when, the, he's, uh, when Hartnell is sitting at the end of the bench and all the kids come up and you see him walking along with the kids behind him like the Pied Piper, you know. And he's talking to them oh, as if he yeah, is the doctor. I'll tell you. I mean, yeah, I mean not, not many people, apart from soap stars, can 
inhabit a character so much that you forget who they are. I mean, I think David Suchet just about handles that in Poirot. I mean, I can't imagine David Suchet as a separate person. Well, I, I always remember reading about Tom Baker in the 70s and that he was a very heavy drinker and he smoked a lot. But as soon as a child came anywhere near him, the pint glass would go down, yeah. the cigarette would get thrown behind him, and he would go into character because yeah. he was so intent on keeping that image yeah. alive and not ruining it for yeah. the child he was talking to, which I always thought was, I mean, what's a professional? I mean, yeah. When you have that, I mean, particularly, it's a kid's program originally, and some would say it still is, but I'm not sure. But when you have that responsibility over shaping a person's intellect, don't let them down. You know, don't let them down. That's why I there are all the Doctor Who's are good except for two, uh, who I won't name, who are both don't do their character justice. Mm. They're not as good as Who. And I think if you're a Doctor Who actor, you should you should really work at it. You know, work at it. I know there have been some who, at the time, fanned and didn't perceive particularly well. But you have things like Big Finish now. Yeah. And there's been a lot of talk online about how they have rehabilitated Colin Baker's Doctor and done wonderful things with his character. They've softened it and really made him a lot more approachable. And it's almost a shame that we didn't always get that on TV and they've had to come back to the role 20 yeah. years later to do it justice. One day you'll be able to mix the sound with the picture and it'll all be as if it was one. Right. <laughs> Anything's possible. <laughs> well, Louis, this has Thank been you. wonderful. Good. Thank you so much for your time. You've given some great insight. I hope some of the people you pass those uh, tapes on to might eventually uh, return them, but uh, who knows? Don't, don't remind me. <laughs> and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you again yeah. soon. Okay. Thank been. you so much. Bye-bye. And with Louis's revelations on missing episodes, that just about wraps up our interviews for this edition. I do hope that you enjoyed the conversations, and that you particularly enjoyed hearing about the various perspectives on the Hartnell era of Doctor Who. We will be back at a later date with another bonus episode with more special content from Hulanta. In the meantime, thank you, and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension, with myself, Anthony Williams, and featuring interviews with Robin Burks, Adam Spring, Alan Seiler, and Louis Robinson. This bonus episode, Sitting at the Feet of Doctor Who, was recorded live at Hulanta between the 3rd and 5th of May 2019. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on either iTunes or Stitcher. And always remember, there are probably more missing episodes out there sitting underneath someone's bed. <laughs>